From the hidden mysteries of prehistory to the loud and out there present, the concept of magic has fascinated, enchanted, and bewitched our minds, bodies, and souls. Join me with your favorite blend of caffeinated ambrosia as I discuss the historical and cultural significance of magic with a smattering of pop culture. I'm your host, J.R. L'Esperance, and this is Coffee and Conjure. Greetings, and welcome to episode two, The Origins of Magic. In this episode, I will discuss the prehistoric period, beginning with what prehistoric even means, as well as a brief rudimentary overview of the characteristics of this period. Then, I'll go into the topic you're really here for, magic. In recent years since I began teaching world history, I've become more and more fascinated with the prehistoric period. It's this kind of sort of amorphous part of human history that takes shape more and more every year as new archaeological discoveries are made. It's really a mystery slowly being solved. And I love a good mystery. Who doesn't? Before we get to it, I, of course, have to tell you what I am drinking. And because we are discussing prehistory, which includes the Paleolithic and Neolithic eras, I figured I'd go with simplicity. Thus, I have my usual go-to donut shop K-cup with a splash of French vanilla creamer and... Funny enough, it is in a coffee mug, gifted to me by my older brother. And that 40-something fool got me this mug that says Poop Aid on it. So, you know, that's where my humor is, folks. (laughs) So, as usual, let me know. Hang on. Take a sip myself. Let me know via email or social media what you're drinking as you listen. Alright, so let's get into it. So what does prehistory mean? The basic definition that I give my students is pretty simple. Prehistory is everything that happened before quote-unquote history. Well, okay, cool, that's great, but what does that mean? History as we know it exists because people wrote it down. Prehistory is what happened before written languages and record-keeping systems. So then I'll ask my students, how can we know what happened if someone didn't write it down? This answer usually takes some coaxing. It is the beginning of the school year, after all, when we have this discussion. But eventually we get to archaeology. And, of course, thanks to those hardworking archaeologists who dig in the dirt and get filthy, so I, the library-loving historian, don't have to, we know a bit about our very early origins in the prehistoric period, which roughly ended about 6,000 years ago. 
But as I said before, this narrative of prehistory is constantly in flux. Every year there are new discoveries that totally change our perceptions, which totally isn't a bad thing. In fact, it's a fantastic thing. It keeps things interesting, you know? Keeps us on our toes. I'm not sure anyone can convey enough the importance of archaeology and how it shapes and changes the study of history. Written primary sources, or those writings that are from the actual period of study, are an important part of a historian's toolkit. But they can really only take us so far. The material evidence, the pottery, the statuary, and so on, um, that our ancient ancestors left, you know, behind for us, that's the good stuff. These kinds of sources make history more real. These are the things that you see in a museum. And, you know, holding a shard of pottery in your hand that may be thousands of years old, it may not seem like a big deal to you, but if you really think about it, that shard of pottery, it may have taken somebody a long time to make that. And, you know, maybe there was a special purpose to it. It might have meant something to that person. So, you know, we think about these things and you just have to appreciate that artifacts really do give us, in the present, a special connection to the past that we can't really get without a time machine. I mean, that would be nice, but kind of fits physically impossible. Physics, all that. So prehistory, right? That seems like a very broad term. So what does that entail? The prehistoric period is actually divided into smaller chunks, and they can be different depending on who you're talking to. Mostly, though, we call these smaller pieces the lower, middle, and upper Paleolithic eras, the Mesolithic era, and the Neolithic era. Here's a bit of a brief timeline to give you some context. First, the Paleolithic era. Paleo means old, and lithic means stone, so old stone age. And yes, paleo means a whole lot more than just a fad diet. The lower paleolithic, paleolithic era began about 2.6 million years ago, so the very early stages of what we might consider prehistory. This is when we see the emergence of stone tools, basic societal structures, and maybe even an oral language of some sort. In our early days, we were nomadic, meaning we moved around a lot, mostly to follow our food source. Again, thanks to our archaeologist friends, we've been able to carbon date some of their findings to this period. So we know that humans existed in some way, shape, or form 2.6 million years ago. After the lower came the middle Paleolithic era. I don't know why that's tripping me up. This is the period believed to be when early modern humans began to migrate from Africa. I'm going to get to that more in a bit. Next came the Upper Paleolithic era, which began about 3,500, uh, thir sorry, 35,000 years ago. Um, this is when hunter-gatherer societies use bones and tusks of animals such as mammoths and the hides from others to make shelter, such as, you know, like tents and stuff. 
This is also the period um, the earliest known Venus figurine comes from. This is one of my favorite early artifacts. You talk about this in like every art history 101 class. This is the Venus of Willendorf. Um, it's called that because it was discovered in Willendorf, Austria. It was probably carved about 25,000 years ago. And um, like I said, it's the quintessential piece you always kind of talk about early on in, in an art history class. It's uh, this faceless figurine of a very curvy female body, you know, probably meant to represent fertility and abundance. And they call her Venus because, you know, she was discovered in kind of like the early modern period, but um, they are kind of comparing her to the Roman goddess of love, beauty, and fertility. And of course, in to the Greeks, she was known as Aphrodite. Moving along, about 16,000 years ago, during the Upper Paleolithic era, cave paintings emerged in France. It is thought that they were painted not only because of you know, a cave being a shelter at the time. But actually, this was kind of in the middle of the Ice Age. Yes, like the movie Ice Age with John Logazamo and Ray Romano and, um, oh, I forgot what the saber tooth. Oh, I forgot who voiced him, but it doesn't matter. Anyway, um, so there was an Ice Age going on and, and a lot of archaeologists kind of assume or think that you know, people sheltered in caves to get out of the harsh elements outside. So some of these most famous um, cave paintings are from the Lascaux Caves, Lascaux, Lascaux Caves in France. Um, there are also cave paintings really all over the world. There's been some that have been found in South America and also Southeast Asia. We'll talk a little bit more about um, cave paintings in a bit. About 12,000 years ago, we have some of the earliest evidence of animal domestication. Did you know that man's best friend is a descendant, descendant of wolves? I don't know about you, but, like, <laughs> I can't imagine being the first human to see a wolf and think, that is the cutest I think I've ever seen. I'm going to keep it. I must domesticate it. <laughs> um, about 8,000 um, BCE, we see the Neolithic era kind of coming to be. Neo means new, and again, lithic means stone, so we've got the New Stone Age. And this era is characterized mostly by a drastic shift in settlement patterns and the prevalence of agriculture. This period is often called the Neolithic or Agricultural Revolution because we figured out how to farm, which meant we didn't need to move around as much for food. We also find some of the world's earliest pottery, um, more advanced stone tools, and cloth weaving. Some of the first towns also emerge because, like I said, everybody is kind of, you know, more sedentary. They're standing still. Um, these towns um, include Jericho, Catalhoyuk, and Aleppo. And something very important to note as well, um, around 4000 BCE, we do have some evidence that beer was being brewed in Mesopotamia and Egypt. Very important note. And then finally, with this 
very brief, well, sort of brief timeline. Around 3100 BCE, prehistoric Britons began building the first version of Stonehenge. There were a, a few versions. Um, but, you know, a continent away in the Middle East, or what we think of as the Middle East, we see the development of Sumer in Mesopotamia, is what we call it, as one of the first major civilizations, marking the beginning of written records. Um, we'll get more into this in the next episode. I want to emphasize first before I move on that prehistory is vastly more nuanced than that brief timeline I just gave you. But I thought that it was good to just give you some good basics to give you a solid foundation. So continuing on, Homo sapiens, our particular brand of human, emerged about 3.3 million years ago and fully formed into our modern skeletons about 120,000 years ago. But that's not even the true beginning of our story. Hominins, or hominids, or any species on the human evolutionary tree have been discovered dating back another four or so million years before Homo sapiens. Our development into the complex creatures we are today wasn't a linear line like that march of progress picture, you know, that popular depiction of man evolving and becoming more upright over time. On the contrary, it's a bit more complex. And I'm not an expert on this, so I'm not going to go into it. But there were several species of hominins existing in tandem, and it is through one of those that our species came to be. Over the course of many years, hominins developed more and more complex cognitive abilities, which led to the development of spoken communication, culture, social groups, things like that. For whatever reason, and there are many theories, Homo sapiens became the last surviving hominin, enduring into modern times, and their remains can be found in every corner of the world. It's cool to note that much of the known information about the origin of hominins come, have come from Africa. Many bone fragments and in some cases full skeletons have been dug up in Africa. Tests conclude that these early ancestors of humans are thousands, if not millions of years old. So how do we end up populating the rest of the world? The theory, often called the out of Africa theory, or at least that's how they call it in the Virginia um, state curriculum, is that at some point our forebears migrated from Africa and slowly moved to inhabit the far reaches of the globe. There is debate on when the migration occurred, as recent archaeological finds um, of teeth and other homo sapien bone matter contradict early estimates. But around 50,000 years ago, modern humans moved from Africa into the Middle East, thought to be in small groups, not in great quantities. Interestingly, Neanderthals, or Neanderthals, considered to be our cousins in the human evolutionary tree, already occupied parts of this area. After that, it is believed that a number of societal and environmental factors caused another small group of modern humans to leave the Middle East for Europe and other parts of Asia and Southeast Asia. Cool. 
But uh, how did modern humans get to the Americas? Hmm? There is much debate on this topic, but many seem to agree um, in the previous existence of a land bridge from Russia into Alaska that afforded early humans the capability of crossing into the Americas. After that, they steadily migrated south into all parts of the Western Hemisphere and adapted to many different environments. Okay, so great. We got a bit of information on where we came from and how we spread across the globe. But throughout all of this change and evolution, how did early modern humans figure out how to even survive in their natural environments? Allowing for me to be here discussing history and magic with you today. My best guess, and one I tell my students every year, and they always seem to get a kick out of it, trial and error. If my buddy ate a mushroom and immediately keeled over and died, well, I'd say that's a pretty good indicator that I should probably not eat a mushroom that looks like that one. The development of an oral language and culture occurs in, in this time amongst our hunter-gatherer ancestors, including the formation of basic organization, organizations such as clans or tribes. Early hominins fashioned crude stone tools and weapons as well, figured out fire, and were considered nomadic. They used bone from the animals they hunted as well, creating needles to make clothing and other tools. With early culture came burial customs and other basic religious beliefs. Along those lines, stone and bone figurines, such as our Venus of Willendorf, have been discovered. They even designed jewelry and other body adornments. It's kind of comforting to know that humans, even in our early days, needed to have an aesthetic. <laughs> Perhaps the most notable cultural piece of this time period is that of the cave art. Cave art has been found, like I said earlier, in um, all parts of the world. Southern Africa, India, Indonesia, North America, South America, and of course Europe. The European cave art is perhaps the most well-known and recognized. Time permitting, in class usually I try to let my students explore the virtual tours you can take of the Lascaux Caves in France, as well as the Chauvet Caves. For the longest time, scientists believe that the oldest cave paintings are the ones found in El Castillo Caves in Spain. However, new modes of testing might upend that theory and prove that cave paintings in Indonesia are the oldest. See what I mean about how even now we can still learn things that change history? Regardless, Cave art is a truly remarkable feat, and a testament to human nature and our want to be creative. Speaking of, archaeologists have even found evidence of our early ancestors having an appreciation for music, with the discovery of bone flutes. Humankind was evolving into something, moving toward our unspoken destiny. But how does magic fit into this period? I'm going to take a sip. And now we move on. I would like to start by saying a little something about religion and magic. It's hard to reconcile both as conjoined entities at times, and other times it just makes sense. 
Religion, of course, is the belief in a higher being. Pow uh, you know, some sort of higher power, a supernatural force, whatever you want to think. Controlling or influencing the universe, including us humans. That is probably the most simplistic definition I can give. But religion is a topic for a whole other podcast in itself. I gave my definition of magic in my introductory episode, but as a reminder, Merriam-Webster Dictionary defines magic as an extraordinary power or influence seemingly from a supernatural source. My personal definition went a little something like this. Magic is the supernatural. The occult, which literally means hidden from the Latin. Magic is intention. It's the manifestation of your will to make things happen. It's bettering the world. It's healing. It's protecting the environment. And so on. You can see pretty easily, I think, where those two things could intersect. Magic, after all, often involves ritual, invoking a higher power for aid, and so on. Religion can be much the same. You're invoking a higher power for aid. Maybe you're lighting a candle as an offering. I hate to throw another word out there, but I'm gonna. Mostly because for the majority of human history, religion, magic, and science are often spoke of in the same spoken of, sorry, spoken of in the same breath. Science is defined as the intellectual and practical activity encompassing the systematic study of the structure and behavior of the physical and natural world through observation and experiment. That's according to the Oxford Dictionary. And as we will see throughout this podcast, magic and science, particularly medicine, are kind of seen as one and the same. So keep that nugget in the back of your mind and we'll circle back to this before too long. Because of the nature of the topics in this podcast, I think it's important to bring up the origins of religion as well, which convenient enough coincides perfectly with our prehistoric discussion today. I would argue that since early man began walking upright and looking up at the morning and evening skies, they have wondered where they came from and why they're here. These are questions that we still seek answers for today. And because we cannot answer them, just as they couldn't answer them, they began to give their best guesses. Why does that giant orb in the sky glow, lighting the way throughout the day and allowing for things to grow? Why does the giant orb at night also glow? What are the millions and millions of small pinpoint lights in the sky and what are their purpose? We often think of the stereotypical caveman, uh, ignorant and incomprehensible, but I bet you early humans pondered these thoughts and more. In fact, many intellectual scholars throughout history have debated the origins of religion. Why wouldn't early humans look up at the astronomical bodies and think of them as some sort of divinity? They didn't know any better. <laughs> it wasn't just the celestial, though. Also, the terrestrial. Archaeologists posit that the earliest forms of religion began in the Paleolithic era with the burying of their dead. Evidence of burial of um, evidence sorry evidence of burial of the dead occurred at at least 
130,000 years ago, if not before that. A rudimentary death ritual implies there was a purpose to interring their dead into the earth, as though it might accomplish something. Would it be to carry their loved ones into the afterlife? Who knows? If they didn't have some sort of concern of what happened once someone died, then they probably would have just left them there where they laid. Archaeologists aren't sure whether the earliest examples of burial were ritual in nature per se. They can't say for sure, as one ingredient is missing. Grave goods. Archaeologists can posit pretty surely that if a grave had personal objects such as pottery, beads, or even food, then the burial was ritualistic in nature. Ritual implies religion or a plea to higher power. Prehistoric humans carved symbols into stone, painted on cave walls, and created figurines out of stone. There's the Venus of Willendorf I spoke of earlier. There is also the Lion Man statue found in Germany. It had the it has the head of a lion um, and the body of a man, so it's an anthropomorphized lion. Why put effort into these material objects if not for some kind of higher purpose or plea? Needless to say, our early ancestors most likely saw the divine in most everything. And in modern terms, we might consider that animism. Animism is the belief that everything has a spiritual presence. Rocks, rivers, trees, plants, mountains, and so on. As with many topics, the use of this word is hotly debated, but you can see why this might seem like a plausible spiritual path for early humans. Again, this is why it is so easy to connect magic, religion, and science. Science of the natural world could be explained with religion or magic. How certain processes work in the world could be magic, or it could be a deity controlling it. At that time, who knew? Um, so I'm going to switch gears a little bit, and I'm going to start talking prehistoric magic geographically, beginning with Africa. From the sources available to me, I was not really able to find a lot of information, so how magic might have been used in prehistory is still being discovered. Much of what we can hypothesize about how magic might have functioned in prehistoric Africa is through cave and rock art, as well as the observance of current traditions of African hunter-gatherer societies, and then relating what you see back to those prehistoric cave and rock art arts. Some of the earliest rock art in Africa, mostly found in the southern parts of the continent, are almost 100,000 years old. There are pictures of animals, people, and even some geometric designs. Recent discoveries in the Blombos Caves in South Africa show that the caves might have been used as an ochre processing location. I'm not sure if I'm actually saying that right, so forgive me. Ochre was made through a process of earth and rock material to make red and sometimes yellow pigments used in rock art. So they took the earth and rock material and they smashed it up really fine and it made 
those pigments that they used. Archaeologists dated some parts of these caves to 77,000 years ago and other parts even older. Some of the cave and rock art examples can probably be explained pretty easily. Animals and herds and people hunting are simple scenes from everyday life of a prehistoric human. But there are some paintings that archaeologists would interpret as something more. There is an idea that cave art could be a sort of initiation rite. The content depicted had to also act as a way to pass knowledge onto the next generation. This would be essential for the survival of the tribe moving into the future. There are drawings that almost appear as though an animal were anthropomorphized. This means that the animal has taken on human qualities. Based on anthropologist observations of nearby hunter-gatherer tribes, the theory is that someone in the tribe might have dressed as an animal on a hunt to manifest the success of bringing down that animal for the good of the tribe. Two observers in the 19th and 20th century saw rituals amongst the Nguni and San people of South Africa, where a hunter dressed as an animal and was symbolically hurt, believing the ceremony would help with the actual hunt. In another ritual, an observer noted that a member of the tribe symbolically wounded and killed an animal drawing for success in the hunt. This is something that today we might call sympathetic magic. Sympathetic magic is about imitation and correspondence. You use an object or herb in a spell in place of the thing you are trying to manifest or make happen. For example, poppets were made to represent a person. And what you did to the poppet was supposed to reflect on the real person. Another example is using herbs, such as rosemary, to purify and protect. This type of magic is the basis of a lot of folk magic traditions. Okay, so we've got cave paintings that represent a real-life hunt in which a ceremony is conducted to symbolically wound an animal on said hunt. This is all done in the hopes that the next day, when the real hunt happens, it is fruitful. So who conducted these ceremonies? For many years, the prevailing theory is that this evidence suggests that the use of trance to embody the animal during ritual. I hesitate here to use the word shaman or shamanism because it is such a hot button and polarized topic within the archeologists, anthropologists, and historical communities. The problem is that there is no consistent definition of what shamanism might have looked like in the prehistoric period. Shamanism in its modern interpretation that still exists today may not have been exactly what happened thousands of years ago. Today, a shaman is seen as someone who brings themselves to an altered state of consci consciousness through various means in order to walk between worlds. According to Northern Eurasian shamanist cosmology, so more like Siberia, Scandinavia, there are three worlds. There's the upper world, or the world of spirits. 
There's the middle world, or the world of the living, and the underworld, the world of the dead. Another belief is the world is inhabited by supernatural entities, so much like animism. Perhaps for the sake of not labeling, we could just broadly think about the existence of a cross-cultural presence of some designated person in a historic tribe that was responsible for the spiritual and religious side of society, particularly communication across the quote-unquote worlds. All right, so moving on. Archaeologists have gathered evidence of rituals in prehistoric Japan in which they recognize several themes. Rituals around hunting and fishing, burial of the dead, ceramic figures of animals, upright stones, and clay masks. Based on the layout of human settlements, archaeologists have theorized the positions were chosen in relation to celestial bodies and certain landscape features, such as the mountains, which are characteristic of the Japanese archipelago. There are several stone circles as well, notably those in Oshoro, Manza, and Nonakado. I'll talk a little bit more about stone circles in Europe, but it seems that the general consensus amongst archaeologists was that these stone circles were meant to mark the movements of certain celestial bodies. Archaeologists have uncovered many ceramic figurines, often with a layer of ash around them, which might imply that fire played a role in whatever ritual the figurines were used for. Once again, we could make an argument here for sympathetic magic. Maybe those figurines were supposed to represent someone or something. As far as burial sites, it has been noted that there are some slight differences in body orientation, you know, what direction they were buried in, and grouping, which might mean prehistoric peoples in Japan buried their dead with their families. So kind of like a, cem a cemetery today. These burials also contained ceramic and stone figurines, stone plaques, and other accessories. So, of course, the presence of these items, as I said earlier, generally leads archaeologists to believe that it might be some sort of death ritual, um, implying, the, you know, implying the belief in an afterlife, and maybe even the need for these items in the afterlife. There's also been a plethora of religious and magical evidence from prehistoric China, Pottery has been found painted with symbols and drawings of animals that could have had a religious meaning. Again, sympathetic magic. At one point, there might have existed large gathering halls. So big buildings where people gathered that could have been the center of religious ritual and celebration. Um, excavations of these have uncovered actual human skulls in the foundations, which could suggest some sort of human sacrifice component? Again, who knows? Ceramics may have been some of the most popular types of vessels used in prehistoric China. Presence at archaeological sites of special ceramic bowls and such, like the fine china your mom only takes out on special occasions, could suggest that they had a ritual use. 
if they had only a special use, then they could also be of religious significance. Perhaps they put offerings in the ceramic containers. Jade, a beautiful green stone, is also a part of Chinese culture. There have been jade pieces found that show some kind of human-like figure adorned with what could be a feather headdress. Is this the prehistoric Chinese version of a religious figure? Again, this could possibly be, as some would think, a shaman. In fact, there was a tomb uncovered that could suggest a shaman was buried there based on the layout and items contained in the tomb. For example, in this tomb, they found a dragon and tiger figurine, which represent two cardinal directions, along with other animal imagery, implying this person could communicate between worlds. Interestingly, the existence of oracle bone inscriptions, so writing on bone, show the concepts of exorcisms and other rites, which could be traced back to the practices of a shaman. It is well known that many cultures around the world include some form of ancestor veneration. Asia is no different. Because of the wealth of items archaeologists have found in prehistoric graves, this leads them to believe that the prehistoric peoples of China were concerned heavily over the well-being of their loved ones, even into the afterlife. The presence of food items in graves could also suggest that the living believed the dead could remain active even though they were dead. In certain parts of prehistoric Southeast Asia, they wrapped their dead in asbestos sheets, covered in red ochre, which I spoke of in regards to Africa. Women were sometimes buried with the tools that they would have needed in life to make clay or ceramic pottery. Men were sometimes buried with ornamental chess pieces that were actually smashed before the body was placed in the grave, no doubt as part of some death ritual. Okay, home stretch. Moving on to Europe. I'm saving the prehistoric Americas for another time. The most time-honored mystery of the prehistoric period in Europe is that of Stonehenge. Funny enough, Stonehenge isn't even the only henge that exists, nor is it the largest. So a henge is basically any rock formation in a circle or, you know, something like that. So why Stonehenge overshadows the rest of the henges that can be found throughout the British Isles and continental Europe, I have no idea but it certainly has captured the fascination of many archaeologists and historians. One of the most enduring mysteries in this is this question of who built Stonehenge? Many people assume it was the Druids, a class of people within Celtic society. But it couldn't have been the Druids because it was built nearly 1,000 years before the Celts even came to England. The culture that built Stonehenge came long before that, 
and the truth of those people are as invisible to us as air. In a recent BBC article from 2019, there were DNA tests completed, and it is now theorized that those that built Stonehenge came from Anatolia, which is another name for Turkey, Turkey, who migrated to Britain around 4000 BCE. Fascinating what we can find out with DNA tests, isn't it? What is Stonehenge is another question a lot of archaeologists and historians ask. Other than the fact that we know the midsummer solstice sunrise aligns with the stones, and the midwinter solstice sunset aligns with the stones, we have no idea of its purpose. We just maybe assume that it was some sort of ancient calendar or um, some sort of religious site because of the proof of burial sites around the Henge. A lot of people like to say there were human sacrifices made there, but again, it's something still under investigation and perhaps we may never fully know. I love legends surrounding Stonehenge, particularly those that involve Merlin from Arthurian myth. Some would like to believe that Merlin magicked the stones to the field where they stand. Or he enlisted the help of giants to erect the stones. Who's to say he didn't? As I said a moment ago, Stonehenge is not alone. There are thousands and thousands of other henges scattered throughout Europe, from Sweden to the Mediterranean. Most are made of stone, pillars, but others were made of wood. Archaeologists were able to recover or find the post holes of those wood henges and have marked them with concrete pillars, as at Woodhenge in Durrington Parish, England. Another famous Stonehenge is that of the Stones of Avebury, England, the largest henge in the world. Sorry, I had to bring up Avebury because it actually plays a part in my next novel, Guardian of Time. Shameless plug. Anyway, it's amazing because I had no idea how prevalent these stone megaliths are around Europe. Around the world, really. You can find some in the Czech Republic, Turkey, Sweden, Spain, even Africa and the Americas. Literally all over the world. And they are such impressive structures, but we know so little about their purpose in most cases. So it makes one wonder if there might not be a little magic to them. Not to mention, there are kind of out there theories that some of these henges are built on top of ley lines. I'll be talking about ley lines in future episodes, but just know that they are places on the surface of the earth that are supposedly pockets of energy. Magic requires energy to work, so why not build something magical on top of an energy conductor? I spoke a little about cave paintings in reference to prehistoric Africa, but as I also mentioned before, cave paintings are found everywhere. The most famous cave paintings were discovered in France in the Chauvet and Lasgau Caves. In these places, there are people and animals depicted, 
amazing, gorgeous, beautiful paintings of horses and bison-like creatures and deer. Seriously, look these up. They are astounding. They are astounding not just because they are fantastic works of art for what we might call primitive peoples, but their subject matter makes you just gasp. There are mammoths and lions and hyenas. Oh my. Animals you didn't think were indigenous to Europe. But such is evidence that the environment changes. And when the environment changes, so too do the wildlife and people. They have to adapt and overcome whatever obstacles they're faced with. The theories I discussed about prehistoric Africa, about sympathetic magic and hunting magic, also apply to European cave art. Speculation into why these paintings were drawn and why the particular subject matter exists, but again, the beauty and frustration of prehistory is the fact that we can never truly know. But it's fun to guess. There is one feature in Europe that is rather unique to the landscape, and that is the bog body. Ugh, I love bog bodies. Most of the bog bodies that have been discovered are from a little bit later than the period we're discussing. More of the Iron Age and Roman periods. But the Neolithic and prehistoric period had a few as well. So, what the heck is a bog body? Ugh my friend. Let me tell you. The thing that makes Europe such an interesting setting for these bad boys is because of, once again, the environment. I bet you had no idea you'd be getting an earth science lesson too. So, peat bogs are formed in a wetland area that accumulates, you guessed it, peat, which is made up of dead, decayed plants. The water itself in these bogs is more on the acidic side of the pH scale and also replenishes water mostly through rainfall rather than a natural source and as a result is low in other nutrients other wetlands possess and there are low oxygen levels. So basically, the makeup of a bog slows the decaying process down, which allows for the preservation of certain organic materials. In our case, human bodies. Ireland, Britain, parts of the Netherlands, Denmark, and northern Germany have this type of wetland, which is why we have found bog bodies mostly in Europe. The oldest bog body dates to about 8,000 BCE and was found in Denmark. The Kolbjörg man. Only some of this man or woman's bones were found, and perhaps due to the age, it being from 8000 BC, of course, because um, a lot of bog bodies that are found are mostly perfectly preserved mummified humans. There's still some skin, sometimes maybe some hair, but this one was only bones. And again, maybe it was because it's from 8000 BC. Other examples of prehistoric bog bodies include the Cashel Man, found in Ireland, who, thanks to radiocarbon dating, died around 2000 BCE. But there is physical evidence of injuries to the body 
that might have happened before his death. So again, we can only speculate if he might have been used in a ritual. Bog bodies are still being discovered even as recently as 2013, which makes you wonder who else might be out there for us to find. How did these bodies end up dead in bogs? As you can guess, there are many theories. It wasn't a common practice for people in prehistoric Europe to bury their dead in bogs, but it is possible they did so under certain circumstances. Forensic studies of some of the bog bodies showed they were killed before they were put in the bog. Again, this raises eyebrows. Could it be they were murdered or executed before being put in the bog? Or could they have been ritually killed and placed there as a, as a disposal of a sacrifice? Who knows? In the interest of not sitting here rambling for hours and hours, I'm going to end at this great stopping point. While researching for this episode, I was both surprised and not to get the impression that magic has always been there. It's always been somewhere in the human psyche, as explanation for an occurrence or as a way to honor the dead. Though the most I could give you this episode involved theory, cave paintings, small material remains, and bog bodies, I think it's glaringly apparent that magic is and has always been a crucial part of human society. As we saw, even from the earliest stage of human development, we see evidence of death ritual, cave art that could possibly have been created as a spell for the hunt and gorgeous stone structures that, at the very least, show the ingenuity of our early ancestors, and at the most, were astronomical calendars to understand celestial bodies and to recognize ritual. I don't know about you, but I'm excited to dive further along the timeline and see what's in store for us at the dawn of civilization. Coffee and Conjure podcast was created, written, produced, and edited by me, J.R.L. Esperance. Our theme music is composed by Emily Nafius, and our gorgeous podcast cover art was created by Neve at Neve Does Designing. Please like us on Facebook by searching Coffee and Conjure Podcast, and find us on Instagram and Twitter at Coffee Conjure PD. If you'd be so kind, subscribe, rate, and leave a review to let me know how I'm doing. And finally, don't forget to send in your questions, commentary, and coffee suggestions to coffeeandconjure at gmail.com. Until next time, stay enchanted.